0: Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Some of you have moved places. That really messes with a guy, you know? You get up here and I'm looking around. I'm like looking for John and Rachel Leo. I'm like, where are John and Rachel Leo? They're over there. Why are they over there? They're not supposed to be over there. And people move around. What that means, we have visitors. We have people here and that's good. And uh, you get forced out of your seats. That's good. It's good to uh, move around a little bit. It's good to see you this morning. If I don't already know you, and I know most of you, but if I don't already know you, please stop by and see me. My name is Paul, and I'm the the teaching pastor here at Trinity Church, and we're glad that you're here, and looking forward to a wonderful morning together in the Word. I just want to encourage you, if you can, make it this next Saturday to that singing with uh, fellow churches, that'd be a wonderful testimony to them and to... Uh, Each of us as we work together for the gospel, we are Here in the valley for the sake of the gospel And we are if you if you if I can say it this way, we're not the only show in town, right? We're not the only people preaching the gospel Hopefully there's more and more churches that will preach the gospel. And so we want to be practicing that kind of fellowship together We're in genesis chapter 5. We're being going through the book of genesis. If you will turn with me I'll invite you to turn with me to genesis chapter number 5 And stand, please, with me, out of honor to God's word. Genesis chapter 5, I'm going to read the entire chapter, starting from verse 1 all the way through verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died." When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem-ham-ham. And Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Ancestry has experienced a bit of a rebirth, hasn't it? In the last several years, with the advancement of DNA technology and internet access and capabilities, you can find out more about your family's history than ever before. And it's fascinating. You can find out if you're related to somebody famous or maybe infamous, some of us. Funny story about ancestry. My whole life, growing up, my brother and I, our whole life, we were told we were Welsh. That's what we were told from a very early age. We were told we were Welsh. We were from, our ancestors were from Wales. And uh, we were to be proud of that, and I, I was proud of that. You know, Wales, Wales is famous. You know what Wales is famous for as far as Christianity goes? They're famous for producing very loud and passionate preachers. Did you know that? That's what Wales is famous for. So, so Welsh, ready to embrace that Welsh title? Well, my great-uncle, this is when I was a teenager, so it was before I wanted to be a preacher and all that, but my great-uncle got divorced and he married a woman named Patricia. And Patricia loved ancestry. And she got married to my great uncle and she showed up at a, she did a lot of research and, and was very diligent, wanted to find out who the Funches family was really from, right? So she showed up at a family reunion, this new woman in our family, she showed up at a family reunion and made it a, an announcement to everybody that we were, in fact, not Welsh, but we were German. We're German, and the Funchest name, in German, the Funchest, uh, it, it's related to the name Funk, and it actually means fire, fire and fire in the belly, you know, or fire in the heart. It can mean passion or anger, probably more of the latter. I don't, I don't know, but uh, so still, you know, that's, that's why I'm so passionate, you know. I've got fire in my belly, but uh, we don't talk to Patricia anymore, actually. We... we <laughs> Our family doesn't like Aunt Patricia because she, she told us we weren't Welsh. Anyway, ancestry is fascinating. It, it fulfills our curiosities. Well, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 5, and as we were reading, if you didn't read ahead, right, you should have read ahead, but if you didn't read ahead, then I was reading through and you're like, really? This is what we're going to preach on today? A genealogy. That's right, this morning we're going to focus entirely on a genealogy. How should we approach the genealogy of Scripture? There's dozens and dozens of genealogies in Scripture. How do we approach these? Now I know some of, those, some, of you, some of you want to be really cool and show how much of a Bible geek you are, and when we talk about genealogies, you're like, oh man, I just love those genealogies, those genealogies are so cool. Okay, alright, well, for the rest of us... When we read genealogies, we go, okay, we did that, on to the good stuff, right? Get through that genealogy. Well, they are fascinating. Maybe you find them fascinating, but for the average reader, they seem to be a bit in the way as we come to them. We read through all these names and all these lists of years and things. Well, surprise, surprise. Hopefully you're not too surprised by this. The exact opposite is the truth. The exact opposite is the truth. Genealogies are, in fact, extremely important in the Bible for this simple reason. They connect the past to the future. They connect God's promises to their fulfillment. See, the whole Bible storyline is shaped around genealogies. The whole shape of Scripture takes place around the genealogies that we see God has made a promise in Genesis three fifteen. if you weren't here with us when we were in Genesis 3 Genesis 3 15 God makes a promise to Adam and Eve he promises that an offspring of the woman will come and put an end to sin and death you want to you want to have an end to sin and death I do. I want sin and death to be destroyed. And I know that's the hope of your heart as well. Well, Genesis 3.15 tells us how that's going to be accomplished. It's going to happen through the seed of a woman. Therefore, these genealogies then are the outworking of this promise. The promise of offspring involves tracing genealogies. The entire Old Testament is focused on tracing the promises of God to his people. Let me, let me say this right here. This is really important. If you're not paying attention yet, maybe this will get your attention. The promises of God are not for everyone in the world. The promises of God are not for everyone in the world. The promises of God are for those who are his people. How do we know if we are his people or not? Follow the genealogies. That's why Israel found the genealogies so important. These genealogies are what prove their place in God's plan. These genealogies are what connect them to the promises of God. God's promises are not for everyone in the world, but for his children. And maybe this is another attention grabber for you. God's children, this is why scripture puts such an emphasis on being called the children of God or the sons of God. Very important. Not everyone is God's child. I heard somebody say that recently. They were telling me something. They say, well, you know, we're all God's children. Then I stopped her Right, I said, no, actually, we're not all God's children. I want you to know that. We're not, we're not all God's children. Very important. The scripture puts an emphasis on being the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, because these are the people that God has given the promises to. Therefore, genealogy, ancestry, family lines are of utmost importance by the way, and I want you to hear this clearly as well. I gave you two attention grabbers, but I want you to hear this really well. Anyone who would want to join God's family is invited. Anyone. We, we believe, by the way, here at Trinity Church, we believe in election and predestination. We believe that because the Bible teaches it. But along with that, we also believe whosoever will may come. You need to hear that. If you don't want to partake in the promises, you you can't claim the promises of God without being part of his family, but you can join his family anytime (laughs) he invites you. We invite you today. You could say then that genealogy and family lines completely define the storyline of scripture. Genealogies are not in the way of you reading the Bible. In fact, genealogies are the way for you to read and understand the Bible. This is where the storyline of Scripture unfolds. And so we come to a genealogy this morning, the genealogy of the line of Seth. Last week, we looked at the genealogy of Cain. And it's not a coincidence that the genealogy of Seth is in the chapter right next to the genealogy of Cain. You're meant to contrast them. You're meant to compare them. You're meant to see the differences between them. We see clearly in the structure and content of this genealogy we just read that we're meant to see these two together. We saw last week that the line of Cain, remember Cain? Remember that story, Cain killed his brother Abel? The line of Cain builds cities and advances culture, develops culture, and produces societies. We see God's common grace to mankind. We see what man is capable of accomplishing in the line of Cain. This is in chapter 4. Did you did you know man is capable of accomplishing great things? I told my students this last week, I'm very thankful for common grace. You know, some, some of you, when you go to surgery, some of you, when you go to surgery, you like care a lot that the person who's doing the surgery is a Christian. I have people tell me, well, and my doctor's a Christian too. Listen, I don't mean to offend you. I don't really care if my doctor's a Christian or not. I just want them to be good at their job. Like if I'm going under the knife, like it's good you're a Christian, but can you do the job? Okay. And, and why? Because of common grace common grace there are surgeons and doctors and scientists and teachers and all kinds of professions that are they're really good at their job and they're not Christians why? because of common grace by the way just because you're Christian doesn't mean you don't have to work hard you want to be a surgeon and a Christian you better be good at your job anyway back to the point so we see last week that Cain builds cities. His line builds cities and develops culture, common grace. However, Cain's line begins in self-glory. Remember Eve's word. I've gotten a man with help from the Lord. His line begins in self-glory, continues in anger and murder. His descendants are just like him. And even further, it multiplies. Cain's line multiplies in gross immorality and defiant violence. This is Cain's line. Does that sound familiar, by the way? As we look around at our world? So while mankind is capable of great advancements for the good of society and culture, mankind hates God and destroys his image upon the earth. For all that man can accomplish, they turn their hearts away from God and seek to oppose God in every step. Cain's line is contrasted with Seth. Seth is born in exaltation to God and his grace. Eve has changed her song. Before she says, I've gotten a man with help from the Lord, but here at the end of chapter 4, she says, Now the Lord, in his grace, right, has appointed to me another offspring. This is God's work. Then in the days of Seth's son, Enosh, man begins to call upon the name of the Lord. You can find that at the end of chapter 4. Seth's line begins to call upon the name of the Lord, which which reminds us of the garden. Remember when the, the the Lord God entered the garden after Adam had sinned? And he cries out, Adam, where are you? Well, in Seth's line man begins to call out to God and trust in his name. If there is hope for mankind, it will come through Seth's line. And that's what the scripture is trying to show you. If there is hope for the promise being fulfilled, it will come through Seth's line. But this hope will face a great challenge. That challenge will be the mortality of every man. The mortality of every man because of sin. Let's be honest, as you were looking at this genealogy, you were struck by the numbers, weren't you? The long numbers. You read this, and you think to yourself, this hardly seems possible, People living 900 and something years? That's ridiculous. Well, I want you to know, unapologetically, I find these lifespans, I, I believe these lifespans are literal lifespans. I have no problem actually seeing them as literal lifespans. I believe Adam literally lived 930 years. You say, well, why do you, why do you believe that? Well, it says it right here in scripture, number one, Right? But, but three reasons I want to give you. Man, think about this, man was made to live in material world forever. That's what man was made to do. God made Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve to live in physical bodies forever. This is what man was made for. So it, I don't find it hard at all to believe that the first generations of mankind experienced unusually long lifespans. Secondly, the text clearly means for us to see these as literal years, because we'll see in the very next section, actually in chapter 6, we'll see that because of man's ongoing sin, God limits their years to 120. So, So the juxtaposition of those two, accounts tells us that man's man's time is now limited because of sin and its effects. This is in a sense judgment, a form of judgment upon man. Man lives a very short amount of time compared to what he was intended for. And this is what we've come to experience. The very oldest people on the face of the earth they live when they, they live these extraordinary long lives we think we live to be 115, 120 years old. Third, reason I take these numbers as literally, the scripture speaks, in Isaiah chapter 65 as an, as an instance, the scripture speaks of a future messianic age, which is again lived out in material world, not, not someplace up in the cloud somewhere, but in material world. The scripture speaks of a messianic age where lifespans will again return to these types of length. Isaiah 65 says this. Listen to the words of Isaiah 65. For behold, Isaiah 5, 17-20 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and no more shall be heard in it the sounds of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the younger man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So, the scripture points to a future messianic age where there will be again a return of long lifespans. We get into that and what we believe about eschatology and all that. The point, we're not going to do that. The point is that these, these years in Genesis 5 are meant to be taken literally by scripture. Scripture's intent is that we would take these literally, and that's what I'm inclined to do. Now, as you would expect, as you would expect, there is no little debate about the significance and the math of all these numbers. There does some, be, seem to be some evidence in other ancient writings of artificially enlarging numbers. In fact, there's a there's a Sumerian uh, list of kings, great kings, and there's ten of them. By the way, when you find a genealogy, it's usually going to be in numbers of seven or ten or some kind of multiplication of seven. That's just how the Bible uh, does that. Very, very uh, tight and uh, how they present genealogies. The Sumerian list of kings, there's ten kings, and these kings live and reign thousands of years, tens of thousands. In fact, the the highest reign is 72,000 years, the Sumerian kings. And so there's an inflation, an artificially enlargement of the numbers in order to communicate greatness. This king was the greatest because he reigned 72,000 years. Well, if you're going to take this genealogy that way, like it's just some kind of ancient artificial enlarging of numbers, you've got a problem. Why? Because the oldest man doesn't even live to be a thousand. In comparison, these guys' lifespans are really puny. If you're going to communicate greatness by artificially enlarging the numbers, why not thousands and tens of thousands of years? No, their lifespans are actually very short. The emphasis of this genealogy then, in fact, is upon mortality. Now this, this, this turns it on its head, don't, don't you think? So you read this and you go, man, these numbers, they're just super long. I can't believe man would live that long. This is really odd. Actually, the point of the genealogy at the, at the, is that these men lived very short lives compared to what they were intended to live. That's the point. And you see this punctuated in that every single one of them ends in death. Did you see that? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The point of this genealogy then is man's mortality. Man's greatness is overblown, all men die. Death is the great equalizer. It's what humbles every man. Let me ask you a very simple question. How long do you expect to live? How long do you expect to live? This is why Ecclesiastes says to us, it is good for us to go to the house of mourning. It is good for us to go to the house of mourning and of grief. It's good for us. Why? Because an encounter with death will remind us of who we are and of who we're not. It puts our life into perspective. Our society wants to avoid death, wants to avoid being reminded of death. William Shakespeare wrote this poem. I'm going to give you this poem in its entirety to show you how cultured I am. William Shakespeare writes this poem called All the World's a Stage. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail, unwilling to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the bard, Jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good cape lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and in modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sands teeth Sends eyes, sends taste, sends everything. This is the story of every person. Everybody's life follows this trajectory. William Shakespeare understood that. And that's why a poem like that is so profound. You see, and you, I want you to hear this, your life is not unique. You got to hear that. Your life is not unique. This record has been played before. Throughout the years, throughout the generations, they have come, they have gone over and over and over and over again. It all ends the same way. You and I, then, will never find hope in this life. You and I will never find true hope until you realize the futility of your false hopes. In other words, you can't find true hope as long as you are putting it in what will not last. This life, your life, will not last. You say, well, that's very discouraging. I didn't come to church for discouragement today. No, this is the most encouraging news you could hear today. Because as long as you are deceived into thinking you can make this go on forever, until you are relieved or disabused of that notion, you will never find true hope. This is why so many are hopeless. Because they think that this life is all there is. No, this life is fleeting we read it this morning in James. What is your life? It's, it's a vapor. It's here for a little while and gone. You need to hear that. I thought of this illustration as, as I was thinking about the shortness of life and how we want to hold on to life. Have you ever gone to the beach, maybe with your kids, gone to the beach and enjoyed the beach? I don't like the beach. I don't like the sand. I'm not a big fan of the sand. Gets in the vehicle and all that. You has got to clean it up. you ever gone to the beach, though? Have you ever picked up sand? Have you ever tried to hold on to sand? Have you ever tried to get as much sand as you possibly can in your arms, and your hands? What happens to all that sand? It, it goes away. It goes through your fingers, right? This is what life is. The tighter we try to hold on to this thing that's going away, that's fleeting, the tighter we try to hold on, the more it slips through our fingers. It doesn't last. We need real hope this morning which is good for us because we're in Genesis 5, which is all about hope. I want to give you three reasons today. Three reasons to have hope. We're going to find them in Genesis 5. Three reasons to have hope, even in the midst of death. See, see the hope isn't trying to avoid death. That's not your hope. Oh, this life is not meant to go Because of sin, your life will end, your 70 years, 80 years will end in death. But how can we have hope in the midst of this death? I want you to see this, and and if you're reading a genealogy, I think we said this last week. There will be points where it will break, the genealogy will break in its rhythm, and those where you often will see, hey, this is something that the genealogy wants us to pay attention to. First thing, three reasons to have hope in the midst of death. Number one, I want you to see in this genealogy that God's mission to fill the earth with his image remains intact. God's mission to fill the earth with his image remains intact look at it there right at the beginning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years he fathered his son in his own likeness. Do you hear that language? In his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. God created Adam and Eve in his image and Adam and Eve have a son and he is in that same likeness and image. The likeness and image of God is passed through childbirth. The creation mandate to multiply and fill the earth with God's image is still underway. This is very important. As we discussed a few weeks ago, all of mankind is made as God's image bearers, right? This is what we were made to be. This royal title of image of God does not merely belong to the select few, but to all of mankind. And this language of image and likeness is attached to Seth's line. It is through this line that mankind will be returned to what they were created to be the sun kings that God has made us to be. How will this be accomplished? It will be accomplished through the one who is the true image and likeness of God, Jesus Christ. This is why the New Testament is so full of image and likeness language connected to Jesus. So get this, get this whereas the line of Cain goes on to tell us of all the cultural achievements wrought by his descendants and on their advancement of technologies, the line of Seth focuses on having children, It's as if to say, you want real achievement? You want real accomplishment? Here it is. Having children. Seth is one of many sons and daughters that Adam and Eve have, and you see that in every single line. Many sons and daughters. This last week I came across an article where a young lady was preaching the heresy of childbirth or having children is unethical or immoral. If you have children, you're unethical today because we have a world that is unstable. We have an environment that is collapsing. And so it is wrong. It is immoral. It is unethical for you to have children. That is a lie. Genesis 5 tells us that's a lie. I want you to hear this again. I've said this a couple of different ways, a couple of different times, but creation's problem, hear this well, especially, listen, if you are a teenager, if you're a young person and you're going to a, a public school, you're hearing a bunch of junk. And I, 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 I'm not for or against you going to public school. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're, if you're there, you're hearing a bunch of junk. And I want you to hear this because this is, this is truth you need to hear. Creation's problem, the world's problem is not Man. The world's problem is sin. And the effects of sin. Our problem isn't man. It's not immoral or unethical to have children. In fact, if we want something good for our earth, the answer seems to be have children. And raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's, that's the answer. You want to do something tangible? You want to do something meaningful? Have a family. I hear college kids all the time. I'm around college kids all the time. I hear college kids like debating. They get married and they debate. I don't know. Maybe I should have, maybe we're having, I don't know. Seems like a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's messy. Well, everything's going to change. You know, it's going to be so hard. Is yeah! Everything worthwhile is hard, people. Everything worthwhile is hard. Do hard things. If you're married, have children. Now I know, I have to be quick to do this, right? Not everyone here will be married. And not everyone married will be able to bear children. Because of sin and its effects... However, I'm not going to back down from this. It does seem that having bearing children and then discipling them to call upon the name of the Lord is the real and tangible way to fight the effects of sin in our world. And for all of us. So if you're not married, or maybe you're married and you're not able to have children, well, that that doesn't get you off the hook, actually. Because a bigger picture of this having children. bigger picture is Christ's command to us to make disciples in his name. See, that is actually what having children's all about. Let me say it this way. You're not godly just because you have a bunch of kids. Man, if that was the case, I'd be like the godliest guy in here, right? (laughs) Or um, uh, in their midst, at least. Eight kids? I mean, come on. No, my wife reminds me, Right? It's not enough just to have them, Paul. We have to disciple them. And that, that's it. If you have children, you need to disciple them. That's your role. That's your job. And we all know God is sovereign over salvation. God's the one who saves. I can't save my children. However, we've got to counter that a little bit with the ordinary means for your children to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the ordinary means for your children to come to salvation, the ordinary means is godly parents. That's your job. That's your role. You say, well, I want to do something important. There's nothing more important than that role. I want to have a ministry. That's your ministry. Can you tell that I'm a little bit passionate about this? This is really important. And you say, well, I, I, my kids are gone. I'm an empty nester. Or maybe I'm not able to have kids. Or maybe I'm not married. Make disciples. <laughs> your role is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Call people to follow Jesus Christ. Whether they're your children in your own home or not. Call people to follow Jesus. This is our role. Genesis 5 teaches us that this mission, God's mission to fill the earth with his image is still on course. It remains intact. That's how the genealogy ends. Let's consider how the genealogy ends real quick. Second point for hope. First hope is that God's mission to fill the earth with his image remains intact. Second hope is this. The hope for all creation remains in the line and through the line of Noah. Look at it there at the very end. Verse 28 When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. 777 shows that completion of the list there. And then verse 32, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What is Lamech? Very interesting, if you did all the math. Lamech, in his generation, is the generation that Adam would have died. So Adam lives to see Lamech's life. And in Lamech's generation, that's when Adam dies. And it's at that point in the story that Lamech, in thinking and in remembrance of the promise back from Genesis 3, he gives his son a very significant name, Noah. Noah sounds like the word for rest, relief. Mankind was created, placed in the garden to experience the rest of God. God ceased from his work and rested the seventh day. Man enjoyed that rest, but sin disrupted that rest, brought a curse upon the ground And now Lamech is saying, this son, Noah, he's the one, through him, that rest will be restored. Relief will come. We'll be saved from our toil and pain. It's going to come through Noah. The hope for all creation remains in the line of Noah. Noah continues the hope of the promise. This genealogy brings us from Adam to Noah. We'll see in later on in Genesis from Noah on to Abram. Another ge- genealogy of ten names. But in this name, Noah, the promise of a restoration of the earth. The hope of salvation for man involves a restoration of the ground to be accomplished in the line of Seth, which ends here with Noah. But I want you, I want you to hear this. This is something most of us do not connect in our minds. I want you to hear Romans 8. I'll, I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there. I want, you, I want you to hear Romans 8. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, so Paul says, Paul the apostle says, the suffering of this present time isn't worth worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For, he goes on to say, the creation, now it's not talking about mankind there, it's talking about actual creation. Okay, it's talking about the earth. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So what is the creation waiting for? The creation, earth, is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's that? Who's the, who are the sons of God? For the creation was subjected to futility right, by sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Sons of God, children. So the creation, the creation and its restoration is connected to the revealing of these people, the sons of God, the children of God. For we know, he goes on to say, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. That's how we know the creation is not talking specifically about man, because he goes on to say, we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. There's the sons of God. It's us. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So that's a lot. I'm not trying to preach Romans 8 here, but listen to me. The creation, that is the earth, will be restored. And it will be filled with those who bear the image of God. And who are those who bear the image of God? Those who have been redeemed in Christ. You know you know who are the sons of God, the children of glory, those who are in Christ. You know where your future is? It is the new heavens and the new earth, filling his earth with his image. That's where everything's headed again, not someplace out in the clouds somewhere where we all play our harps, but real material world, the new heavens, the new earth. God has made man as his image. Christ is that perfect image. We are made God's sons and daughters in Christ, and he restores us to that image which we were created for. Our role then as that restored image of God is is for the present well-being of the earth and also for its future. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand what he's doing? With you, with us. This hope remains for all creation. And then I want to give you the last note of hope here. The last note of hope. God's mission to fill the earth with his image remains. God's hope for all creation remains. And there remains for man an opportunity for life. Look at verse 21. You had to see it when you were reading through it. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. I said earlier, the whole genealogy, every single man in this genealogy, his life ends in death. But there's one man whose life doesn't end in death. Enoch. What is it that marks his life? Enoch's life is characterized, is described as being one who walks with God. Get this Enoch communes with God. The language of communion with God calls to remembrance the blessed state of the garden when God and man walked freely together. That's how we picture communion, isn't it? You're walking. You walk with your wife. You walk with your husband. Hand in hand. You're experiencing communion. Fellowship we've substituted that word communion for a more modern word or concept called relationship I, I i'm sad about that change communion is is a richer term than relationship because when we talk about relationship it's so weak <laughs> communion with god walking with god it was the sound of this walking in the garden that frightened Adam in his sin. He was afraid now of God. Enoch walks with God, seeing a return, a reversal of the exile from Eden. Noah, here in the next chapter, Noah will be said to walk with God. This is why God chooses him, to be the deliverer for mankind in his time. The patriarchs of Israel will also be invited to walk before God. They will walk in his presence. The Lord God walks in the midst of his people, Israel, as he dwells in their midst. To walk in his commandments. But I want you to to hear this. This walking with God, this communion with God is what brings life. Communion with God brings life. It was not the tree of life itself that gave life. To be in his presence is life. The tree was a symbol, a physical and tangible call for Adam and Eve to trust God, to obey God, to walk with God. They would have life if they would stay in his presence. But they turned their face away from him. They rejected his voice and turned their face toward the one who opposes God. And their turning away brought death death that passes upon all mankind, for all have turned away. But Enoch, Enoch walks with God. Don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see what's taking place here? With Enoch's example, God is signaling to mankind. God is telling us here in Genesis chapter 5. The life that Eden provided. The life available in the garden is still available. It can still be had. You can still live in Eden. Because it's not about a place. It is about a person and communion with him. Communion with God. Life comes from this communion. Life comes from walking in his presence. Enoch seems to avoid death by walking in God's presence. But I want you you to hear this. There is another one in scripture. There is another man in scripture. Who has the favor of God. Who does not avoid death. But instead meets death head on the eternal Son of God, who eternally enjoys the presence of his Father. He became a man, and they called his name Jesus, for he was going to save his people from their sin. Jesus, as a man, trusts and obeys, as a man was intended to do. He is the image of God. Jesus, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, his father was handed over to wicked men, the children of the serpent, if you will. And they killed him. They murdered him as Cain killed Abel. They murdered Jesus. But by his death, he satisfies the wrath of God against sin as only a perfect sacrifice can do. And then he rose from death See, he doesn't avoid death. He goes right through death. He meets death head on. And he conquers man's death once and for all. He then ascends back to his father's presence where he has secured our place with him in God's presence. Do you see why it's so significant when it says he has given us every spiritual blessing in him in the heavenlies? Because that is where God's presence is. Our life is secured in his presence. Here, John 17. This is so important because communion with God. Communion with God is accomplished through union with Jesus Christ. You want life? It takes place in communion with God. That's the only place you can find life. You want communion with God? The only way to have communion with God is through union with Jesus Christ. John 17, Jesus says when talking to his father, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus comes from the presence of the Father. He wins our salvation by his work and then takes, by this union, takes us back to the presence of the Father where we have our life secured in his presence. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. This is so important for you to hear. God is not far off from you this morning. God is not far away. You are not separated from God by space. Your separation from God is not spatial. Your separation from God is spiritual. God is not far away from you. God is here even now. He is not distanced from you by a great amount of space no your distance from him is a spiritual distance and I want you to hear these words very clearly he is near to you even now and God the 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 creator of the heavens and the earth God wants to dwell with you God wants to have communion with you. God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. That's what God wants. He doesn't want your judgment. He doesn't want wrath poured out upon you. God wants relationship, communion with you. And he's not far away. Don't you hear him in the garden saying to Adam, where are you, Adam? That is who God is. Where are you, Adam? Don't you hear him with Cain? Cain, don't go down this road. You will be accepted if you do well, Cain. You'll be accepted. Don't you see see him here in the midst of the genealogy where mankind is dying and experiencing the death of their sin and their sinful choice? Here, even we see Enoch walks with God and he experiences life. This is what God has for us. Don't you see God as he sends his beloved son to take man's sin, to die in man's place, to rise again to life for mankind He wants you to share in his life. This is what God wants. The distance between man and God is not spatial, it's spiritual. You say, well, I would come to God, but he wouldn't allow it. That is not true. You not coming to God is your own choice, not God's. God has done everything, everything to call you to himself. Your decision to not go to God, that's your choice, not his. We must be clear on that. It is not God who has forsaken man, but man who has forsaken God. And God invites us to turn from our sin and come back to fellowship with him. Do you hear that that word, turn? Turn. Again, it's not a spatial distance, it's a spiritual distance. But you only have one face. Did you know that? You only have one face. You cannot look at God and your sin at the same time. You cannot desire God and desire your sin in your own way at the same time. You only have one face. If you're going to have communion with God, if you're going to meet with God, you must turn from your sin and head towards God. God. Turn. Repent. He has given everything necessary for your communion with him. I want to read First John 1. Listen to these words. First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, there it is, the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. This is the apostle John talking. What does he talk about? The life was made manifest and we have seen it. What's he talking about? It's Jesus. We saw the life made manifest to us. We've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. I ask you just very simply as I close. Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? This last week I had one of those days. Have you ever had one of those days where you're like, all, all the truth that you know seems to be really useless and you just kind of living in your circumstance and living in your situation. You ever had one of those days? And here I was having one of those days Fact. I'll be really specific. It was yesterday. I was sitting there yesterday, and I was like sitting on the couch. It was one, at one point that I was just sitting on the couch. I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. Can't go forward anymore. Can't be there. You know, I just this all like don't, doesn't feel like it's worth it right now. Here I am. The Saturday before, I'm going to talk about communion with God, and I'm sitting there, and I I just told the Lord, Lord. I'm going to talk about communion with you tomorrow. And right now, I am not living out what I have to preach tomorrow because I, I don't feel close to you. I don't feel like this is, po- this is all pointless, you know. Don't feel like there's a point. And, and the Lord, the Lord encouraged me in that moment with what I'd been studying all week. He says, Paul, Paul, your only responsibility is to walk with me. Let all the burdens and all the difficulties and all that—that's—I've got all of that. Just walk with me, and I've made every provision for that. I'm not far away from you. I'm here with you. Walk with me. That moment, I I don't have any other thing to do. All I have to do is walk with him. Are you walking with him? Are you teaching your children how to walk with him? You want them to have life? Life is only had in communion with God. And communion with God is only had through union. Union with Jesus Christ. There's great hope. What is your life today? What is the hope of your life? What is your role today in this world full of death and despair? Are you walking with God and experiencing His life? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this genealogy. We thank you for your timely word. Over and over again, we see how you provide through your word for us. I pray that you would give us hope in your word today, not in our feelings or circumstance, but what our true circumstance is. We are truly in Christ, and we have your presence, and we have life. I pray that you'd help us see your heart towards us today, that you have not distanced yourself from us. It is we who need to turn and look you in the face. I pray that you would by your spirit and by your work, draw men to you, draw women to you and children to you by your goodness and by your grace, we pray.